Welcome to Sound and Vision. Conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision podcast listeners, if you are listening to this podcast the day it releases, which is Thursday, July 28th, tonight, 6 to 8 p.m., the Why I Make Art book signing and party for the release is at Miles McHenry Gallery at 511 West 22nd Street. Come out, get a signed copy of the book, get a book tote for free, and there's also a group show that we curated with some of the people in the book. So come out and check out the art, get a copy of Why I Make Art, and hang out 6 to 8 p.m. tonight at Miles McHenry Gallery. If you can't make the opening, you can find the book online at Altilier Editions or anywhere you get books. Amazon, Target, Barnes & Noble. Why I Make Art is out now. Sound & Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors, who make amazing acrylic and oil paint, watercolors, and painting mediums. Made in upstate New York, an employee-owned company, Golden sets the standard for art materials. You can find them in your local art store or online at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is also sponsored by Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. Fulcrum has an incredible array of roasted coffee beans that you can order and have delivered to your door. They even have a subscription service of curated blends that you can order by visiting their website fulcrumcoffee.com. Sound and Vision listeners can get 20% off their order by adding the code Alfred Studio at checkout. Check out Fulcrum for some amazing coffee at fulcrumcoffee.com. Born in Santa Monica, California in 1974, Jean-Pierre Roy is a Brooklyn-based painter and educator. He received his MFA from the New York Academy of Art in 2002. He's currently represented by Gallery Poulsen in Denmark and Davidson Gallery in New York City. He's participated in numerous group exhibitions in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, and is at solo museum exhibitions at the Torrance Art Museum in Los Angeles and the Virginia Museum of Contemporary Art in Virginia Beach. His work has been written about in the New York Times, the New York Post, Art News, Art in America, New American Painters, the Chicago Tribune, the Huffington Post, the Seattle Stranger, the Wall Street Journal, High Fructose, and Juxtapose, amongst others. His work is in the collections of Jerry Ann Chaney, Beth Rudin DeWoody, Jean Pagosi, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Bjorn Borg, amongst others. I spoke to Jean-Pierre about early days in Brooklyn, starting out in film effects, his migration through dystopian themes in painting, neurology, and much more. Here's our conversation. So, uh, yeah, thanks a lot for doing it. So, are you, do you live in Greenpoint? I've read, or? My, stu- my studio's in Greenpoint. Um, I live kind of in, like, right in the edge of uh, East Williamsburg, South Williamsburg, and kind of Williamsburg Central. So, so we're close. Uh, it's, all, it's all the same. Yeah. Where are you? Are you in Greenpoint? Uh, I'm in East Williamsburg. You are? Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm right, 
I'm right over. I'm like equidistant between the Lorimer stop, the Grand stop, and the Montrose Got stop. It. So you're a little further south of me. I'm over by Graham Avenue. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was there for... I lived on, on, on Judge Street for probably a close to better part of a decade. Nice. And, and is your uh, studio over by like Greenpoint Ave? I mean, there's not many places in Greenpoint. Yeah, it's right. It's, you know, it's, if you ever uh, drop that wedding ring down the drain, let me know. I'll run across the street to the sewage nice. treatment plant. Oh, you're, the, oh yeah. you're in that I'm building. I'm right there. I'm in the big Leviton building there, yeah. Yeah, I'm always over there. I'm like, we run a soccer camp on Newton Barge at that playground over there, oh. and which is, oh, that's cool. you know, there's so much development over there now. It's crazy. Yeah. Remember back in the day? Well, how, well, how long have you been in Brooklyn? Uh, since tw- 2001. Yeah, it was like, I mean, I was shortly before that. I remember when yeah. Newton Creek was just like, you know, you, you felt like the lore was if you walk within five blocks of it, you're going to catch some sort of weird yeah. radiation funk or something. Or, or there, there, there were uh, abandoned cars all up and down oh, Kent. Oh, yeah, those were the days. And, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a, different, it's a different city now. Yeah, so... That, at least this part of the city is very for sure I mean I you know I think we so we moved to the city roughly the same time and yeah, I think yeah. we're the same exact age so we've kind of I, I just turned 48 yeah so you're a little older than me you got me by a few months so yeah I mean we're we you know migrated through this journey right it's like <laughs> yeah this this sort of like not only the change of New York over that amount of time, but also technology too, which I'm sure. Oh my God, what a big leap! Yeah, technology, geology, and uh, real estate. Oh jeez, yeah, yeah. All, all, all wrapped. I mean, you know, in terms of like the the uh, the pins, the metrics by which you judge urban right. change. I Where guess. was your first studio uh, when you moved here? Oh man, I tell people, I you know, I've had like three apartment in 20 years i've had three apartments in like eight studios uh the one i'm in now i've been in for a while but my first studio was actually out of grad school was actually in greenpoint it was in the pencil factory oh nice and i was there for pro not that long only like six months before there was a big like lease shenanigans and um then i had a studio under uh what was uh for a while afterwards uh a, a bar um on um, uh, North 8th and Wythe and is now like an overpriced well maybe it's not overpriced I don't, want, I don't know I don't want to presume, hotel but a rather a highly priced uh, um, no like a vintage furniture designer furniture oh store. right um, same block as that old uh, fire oh, station right. that's been there it was a great that was a great second you know it was it was my first true basement studio nice. you know with, with complete with flooding and all the accoutrements that come with that. Yeah, you're yeah, right by Bushwick yeah. in the park. And right across yeah. this, what, from now, there's like that hot sauce place there, which I always yes, find. the same block. There's the hot sauce place and the comic book store right there. Yeah. And, uh, and then, the, yeah, I mean, that was, uh, you know, all the neighborhoods that I've had studios in, you know, you find stuff um, that you don't expect. And, and before you know it, you, you, you kind of fall in love with, all the quirkiness of your, you know, three block lunch walk radius. Yeah. And, uh, I've been lucky that way. I had a great studio, uh, up on, uh, Franklin, uh, between Huron and India for years. And then I was out in Bushwick, um, uh, for a year or two. And then I was in, 
a studio in that um, cast iron building kind of uh, across the street from that the the new movie theater on uh, Grand, oh, right. near yeah. Driggs, Grand and Driggs right there. And that was great. And now I'm up in Greenpoint again, so I've kind of full come circle. full circle. But I've been in I've been in this space for like eight years. Well, so. Greenpoint is way. Well, I mean, it's nice. You know, it's it's. I just feel like it's I, nicer than Bushwick. My studio's in Bushwick, and it's like, I don't know. I can't park over there, and it's just a little. I mean, it's fine. You know, the the part of um, because I'm on the other side of McGinnis, and I'm kind of on the other side. I'm kind of sandwiched between the movie studios and the sewage treatment plant and the recycling stuff it my like two blocks really kind of feels like it's part of bushwick you know in terms of its industrialization but you go a block or two west or south and it's and it becomes real green point and it's i've always that neighborhood has just you know always been at the center of like my romantic ideals about brooklyn and about you know what it was like being a young artist and uh to this day neighborhood kind of really holds a special place in my heart so i'm very fortunate i get to uh you know live and work in the yeah it's funny too the perception in neighborhoods not to get dark but like in a mines over by morgan you know in an area that's really industrial and when i leave late at night i'm always like man it's a little you know it's fine right nothing ever happens over there or did i know of has ever happened there was just like a shooting right by your studio the other day. I know. You know, I used to talk to, to kind of roll it back to your first part. I, my studio was over on um, Skull's, uh, like a block uh, west of Morgan. Um, you know, a bunch of little yeah. studio buildings there. And you're right. I mean, that part, that area at night, you leave your studio at 1 a.m. And it is a bit like there's nothing. There's, I mean, there's a few residential buildings, but nobody's there. And right. at first you're like, oh, my God, I'm all by myself. It's late at night. I'm walking home. And you realize, like, no, 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 there's nobody here. Right. Like, like, it's no very safe because out. there's literally nobody there. <laughs> right. It's empty. Uh, and, and then once I, once I kind of got comfortable with that, those late night bike rides home through those industrial neighborhoods just were really freeing because you just you just you feel the emptiness of the city in juxtaposition to the you know the insanity of or the energy of of being surrounded by people in midtown or something like that it was this kind of beautiful yeah. counterpoint but you're exactly right you know right on norman and north henry and not to you know scare away tourists or anything there's a beautiful hotel right there now yeah. that used to be lofts and it was studio spaces before that and right there at five in the morning you know um, there was a, a homicide. I, it, it, I don't know what the details are, but it seemed like it was definitely a targeted. Yeah, no, definitely. It's not that that makes it any, you know, different, but it, it's, no, it's it, just, it, it, the city reminds you of its multifaceted, uh, you know, secret right. lives yeah, every day. Yeah. So, no, I mean, yeah. that's kind of stuff can happen anywhere, you know, but, uh, yeah. but yeah, I love Greenpoint and, um, yeah, the neighborhood, you know, it's, I mean, we've been we've been here working for a while, you know. But you're originally from the West Coast, if I'm not mistaken. I I am, yeah. I'm from um, Venice and Santa Monica. Now, were um, your, well, how did your parents end up there? Uh, because they both were imagining pushing a stroller through Boston winter. Well, snow, that'll get you and out of there. Like, Screw <laughs> this! <laughs> it's funny because I just I was just with my my parents uh, in Maine. Um, a couple of weeks ago and we they, they were kind of going over that history again and and they you know they're both from Boston and um, 
uh, I think my, you know my father wanted to move to LA to do uh, to be a stand-up comic. And oh, really? My mother. Uh, yeah, nice. yeah. My and he did for a long time, um, but it was a different scene then, very different in the in the seventies. And you know there, there was no, it was it was very the only you know the the only way to get visibility was to like go on Carson. Right. Yeah, there weren't a lot of clubs. That was every yeah, yeah. comic. Right. I mean, there's no YouTube. I mean, there were a lot of clubs, but even the clubs were like, you're playing to other comics a lot of It's the not time, like today. You know? It's blown uh, up. Right. Today, today. I mean, every city has, you know, a, a corporate comedy, you know, club. And then the smaller comedy clubs. And then YouTube and Instagram and, you know, uh, TikTok. Like, uh, to be a young, aspiring comic today is very different. But then it was like, if you were in Boston... If you did the Boston scene for a while and performed at um, a number of the places, there's a bunch of you know places that have been around forever that are like starting grads in that area. You had to move to New York or you had to go to L.A. And my dad wanted to go to L.A. because they were going to have a kid and they wanted uh, warm yeah. weather, you know, pushing strollers and T-shirts. Smart move, though, so, as a parent. Yeah, like, well, yeah. I, I, but then, you know, then they see their their 27-year-old son move back to the East Coast to go to grad right. school was a little you know, conflicted yeah. emotionally for them, but they've been very supportive. And I, frankly, you know, it's, I feel fortunate that we get to, you know, it's tra- transcontinental travel has never been easier yeah. other than well, the last pandemic, two years of pandemic, pandemic <laughs> whatever. Um, but yeah, but so wait, but they're back in Maine now. So they came back. Mm. No, we just went oh, up there um, uh, for a family. Yeah. My, they, they like to try to come back in the summer just to, feel the east coast get their bump get it in their i was gonna say because to make that move which is totally understandable about the stroller thing but then to move back as you get older seems really counterintuitive that defies the whole florida logic of like which i'm starting not that i'm not that we're old but i'm starting to understand like if you're 60 or 70 and being like for sure winter i'm out enough (laughs) yeah I, i you know last few days uh, notwithstanding, yeah. <laughs> uh, <It's laughs> you know, toasty. it'll kind of make anybody want to, uh, want winter That's to true. show up That's pretty true. quick. Um, uh, you know, we, we, we were up in New Hampshire and Maine for a couple of days and the weather was just, just perfect. Um, but you know, you're there in February and January. That's, that's pretty yeah. brutal. And if you're, if you're 70 years old and, and you don't, you know, you don't live in a really fancy, uh, penthouse on the on the on the park or something or have a vacation on i could totally see i mean I, like you, you said we've been doing this a while and already i mean it ain't it ain't the winners now as a 48 year old they're not like they were when i was 38 that's for sure yeah. you know walking down the street with a bag full of art supplies in the middle of winter with no gloves but the smile on your face of knowing you were gonna get to your warm little shared <laughs> studio and knock out some paintings like it now it's like it's uh, it hurts right, the back speaking you know, of backs it, you know yeah, like trudging through yeah, the snow uh, it's rough well we my wife and i used to we we have a we i would go over and every christmas i'd get the christmas tree from crest hardware oh, yeah. and throw it throw it on my shoulder and lumberjack it over to our apartment and uh this was the first year uh that we i had to rent the little they have like a little red uh, trolley yeah, just, that you can rent like a little red wagon over throw it in the wagon and cart it over so that was like you're getting older boy (laughs) that was a real moment for me um but uh i i you know everybody asked me like 
well, as you probably know, so many of our friends have moved to the West Coast. I know so many people have moved to the West Coast in the last uh, eight years, and everybody's yeah. like, "Why? Why? You're from here. Why don't you come back? You know, it's so hard in New York." Um, you know, I. But like I said, I, I, I. <laughs> my it's my true. story as um, my story as as a as a young artist and as a as a graduate student and as a a practicing artist my story is all written here you know and and uh, the the west coast art landscape yeah. to me is like uh, it's it just it's so i'm just it feels so alien not in a bad way but yeah. i just i don't this is a different world right it would it's a different world yeah for sure and it's a different world than it was when i was there and and was you know familiar with the scene it's not like uh it's not like i forgot it it's just that it's been kind of like torn down and rebuilt three times over since I left. Yeah. Uh, I suppose New York has too, but I've seen it happen and it doesn't feel, you know, as, um, uh, uh if the transitions I think are, 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 uh, uh, were internalized. Well, yeah, it's always that thing too of, of like when you, when you're somewhere and it's changing, like if you just take Williamsburg, you know, I've been here so long that, you know, yeah. it wasn't, I think, until the pandemic when I didn't go out for a long time. And then I started going back out, going down by Bedford Avenue, or whatever. And you're like, man, it's so different, you know. But if you're there, yeah. it doesn't shock you as much, you know. Same thing with, like, you know, having a kid. It's like, you know, they get big and then you see them every day so you don't notice it. And then someone you know hasn't seen them in a few years and they see them and they're like, what the hell happened? You know, like, it's yeah. just, yeah. you know, so, you know, I haven't been out to L.A., honestly. I had a show in, at Sandroni Ray Gallery in La Cienega and this was, like, yeah. in the mid-2000s, early 2000s, and I haven't been there since which is kind of crazy. Yeah. And I'm sure it's totally different in that amount of time. I guess it is getting kind of a long, it's almost 20 years, <laughs> but, uh, I'm sure yeah, a lot's uh, changed. It, it's, uh, you know, the, the, the pace of that development in that city is, um, as rapid as anywhere else. And, and it's just, it's also so big, you know, uh, it, the, the idea of traveling, cross town there versus here it's just it's a diff you, you have to prepare your day differently yeah. you know and and also um i think a la in some ways you know like it it has the the burden of not having quite as um I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, let's. Uh, I, uh, there have been people living in that part of California, obviously, for a very long time. But in terms of like, you know, the the American experience, uh, the American urban experience, New York has a, a much more established history. Um, L.A. is both burdened, uh, you know, by not having that kind of institutional history, but it's also totally freed by it. Uh, and so there's there's all kinds of you know, romantic uh, loyalties or hangups in New York with certain types of development. And in LA, it's like, whatever, what loyalty, yeah, yeah. you know, that like, we just, let's just, uh, let's try something new. And, 
um, and you don't really realize that until you leave. You know, and uh, I, growing up there, it's it's very neighborhood oriented in terms of where you drive and where you go to school and where your parents work. And like you see those three parts of town, and then every other part of town that you see is like you ha is a deliberate experience. Right. You know, like we're going there to do this, we're going here to do this. Whereas here. Um, you spend so much time moving through places in transit, either as a body or on the subway or walking. It's a completely different experience. You know, your your car in L.A. becomes an extension of your living right. space. So you're in this like miniature living room going into another dedicated destination. And as you know, in New York, it's like it's just we share this this uh, it's a shared artery. Yeah. The, that that transitional you know the second you like the the local bar you know uh, like i remember when um going back you know i remember when harefield road first oh, opened right. and it was yeah. like oh my god we finally we have like a real bar and we have a real pub in the neighborhood <laughs> you know and it right. became a shared living room for like a thousand different people in there in that neighborhood you know uh and there was something uh, that that for me is a, as it was an experience yeah. that growing up in LA I, I never had. You you don't you don't share spaces in the same way. Yeah, or at no, least that's it's how so I, different. Yeah, and but, uh, sometimes uh, that idea of having your own space sounds nice <laughs> because sometimes New York can be a little like well, certainly, certainly, you know, you walk yeah, down to I, the I, store I, and you can't get away from anyone, but. It's it's a different, ex you know, I guess it's just a different experience. The grass is always a little greener, uh, you know. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, I definitely, since COVID, you know, public transportation has, we all have a different relationship yeah, with yeah. it now. And um, and just personal space, too, you know, that that there's a there was a, a distinct lack or, or a much less skepticism about proximity. <laughs> Three years yeah, ago, you know, totally. and now I, I don't know when that's going to go away. So to your point, yeah, I mean, I, I went to L.A. this last March for my mother's birthday and like being in a air conditioned SUV uh, with, you know, 15 cubic square feet of space to all to yourself to go wherever you want uh, was it actually like lowered my blood pressure in a way that I didn't expect. Whereas normally you get in a car in LA and your blood pressure shoots up a notch, you know, uh, for the, you know, which yeah, is not normal. It's calm. Yeah. You're, you're okay with it. <laughs> I'm okay with it. So, yeah. yeah. Well, puts, well, puts, puts the reality of both spaces in sharp relief. Yeah. You, you kind of, I, I think the, the pandemic definitely made everyone recalibrate everything in different ways for good or for bad, but yeah. You know. It just had that effect. But growing up, so Santa Monica was where, is that where you kind of grew up or Venice? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I lived directly in Santa Monica until I was probably seven. And then I moved kind of a little bit east into Venice and, and Mar Vista. But, you know, half of my friends still lived in Santa Monica. So basically it was like, you know, I'd spend two, three days a week in Santa Monica at various friends' houses and Venice, Santa Monica, Mar Vista, it was like, it was all this kind of shared um, set of familial relationships, you know, um, from different schools. So yeah. I was, I would basically always lived west of the 405. Um, uh, and, you know, there are some people who live west of Lincoln that would think that 
where I lived was really far east, but really where I lived was was pretty pretty west in terms of it was I was more or less kind of like a beach kid in that right. sense. You know, did you uh, did you skateboard? Uh, I did, but I never I didn't obsess over it the way some of my other friends and neighbors did, especially growing up in Venice. You know, I mean, there was like as a as a kid in the 80s, you know, I was 10 in 84. So skateboarding yeah. culture in LA in, in Venice had been going on for a while. And so, you know, eight, nine, 10, you start taking tentative steps, you know, 10, 11, 12 on skateboarding and doing stuff. And in that part of town, like skateboarding culture was real and it, it was a little intimidating, you know, uh, for, yeah. for me. Um, I definitely, used it as like a personal form of tra- a personal form of transportation right more than something that i was like obsessed with in like learning tricks and going to the skate park and stuff like that the first the really I, I, surfing was the one that i started began to get really interested in um but funnily enough it wasn't until i kind of um you know, brought the surfing up to the mountains and really started snowboarding and like in my late teens where that that's the one that I got really obsessed with Oh, nice! and spent a lot of time, um, you know, in the Sierras and up through into Canada, basically the, the Western ranges, um, snowboarding as much as I could in the winter. Yeah. It's so much fun. I love snowboarding. I mean, I skated a lot as a kid and the reason that anytime I hear Santa Monica, I think Santa Monica airlines, because that was my formative years of skateboarding was like yeah. those early companies that meant yeah. a lot and i had never yeah. gone to california but that was like the dream you know because you know i was skateboarding in pittsburgh which is a hilly right. town and it wasn't right. ideal and then you watch you know bones brigade and stuff and you're like man it's like it's perfect out there you know it's such a great place and environment yeah. to skate yeah. so um but yeah snowboarding is is another amazing i mean you know i got into that later a little bit not too heavy just because i couldn't I grew up really, we didn't have a lot of money and I never skied or snowboarded until I got older. So, but, but well, that, that's the other thing too, is like those sport, even with skateboarding, like LA is so big that unless you live right around the corner from somebody who's really into skateboarding and has like a, you know, a half pipe or a quarter pipe or something like that, you basically are at the mercy of your parents Yeah, to take you true. all across town. Cause it's not like in LA you can walk to the skate park. I mean, the people who obviously live near a skate park can. Yeah. But here in New York, you know, there's, there's, the city seems to be pretty good about putting them within walking distance for kids. But it, growing up for me, it was like you skateboard on your block or you skateboard to the park. But anywhere beyond that, it's based around your parents' schedules. Right. Uh, and, you know, my parents were both working full time. So it wasn't until, you know, I could start driving and, uh, you know, meet my friends at the beach at 6 a.m. to go surfing or you know had enough money and and a and a large enough vehicle where four or five of us could go snowboarding uh, on like a cheap snowboarding trip up to Bear Mountain or something for the weekend right. it was that level of like independence where i think my obsession could actually reach like a critical mass you know where i could kind of do it whenever i felt the need whereas younger than that the only th- the only obsession i really had uh, and I didn't, I swear I didn't plan for this segue, but the only obsession I really had that I could do whenever I wanted was drawing. I was just about to ask you, whenever you had those bored moments when you couldn't get oh. somewhere, mom and dad couldn't take you somewhere, was it constantly drawing? Constantly drawing, constantly drawing, yeah. It had to be because you have, 
you're the a kind of guy that you can see the facility. I I obviously have never seen you work, but there's just you can tell some people have a touch that is. I would imagine when you're younger, you just have an intuitive. Like some of it's learned, but a lot of it's probably intuitive, and that makes you want to draw. Yeah, I think that's you know I I, I obviously um, because I loved doing it and I did it all the time. I still do it. I still draw, uh, you know, religiously. I did I did a ton of drawings. Of, you know, every waking moment of my family when we were on the trip, and you know, I'm sure some of the my peers that I, I teach with get annoyed with me because I'll do drawings of us eating lunch. Well, you know, they're like, Jesus, give us, give us a break. You know, take some time off. Yeah. Take some time off. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, as a kid growing up, you hear like, Oh, you got a gift, you got a gift. And it's like, well, like, I, I don't remember. Was it, if it was Da Vinci or Michelangelo, uh, who said, you know, if you knew how much time went into this, <laughs> right. you wouldn't think it was a gift yeah uh it really it, but it it's it's about the need to have to do it it's about that obsession and the desire to want to do it again and again and again and i remember you know i was talking to a couple of friends of mine from elementary school a few years ago it was because there were like five of us that would just draw constantly and i remember thinking like oh my god these guys are so much better than me and they all stopped drawing you know yeah. and there's the point at which you realize okay wait a sec I used to be surrounded by people my age that loved to draw and I'm, I'm now the only guy drawing in the room. I don't remember what age it was. It was probably like, you know, 10 or something, maybe 11 that age when you're, you're the, you're the one guy in your grade that is still drawing and everybody else is doing something else. Uh, and, uh, that I was always a little bit aware of that, you know, and then it was the next step yeah. was like, you know, everybody's thinking about, what they want to do for a living and do, getting a job doing this or getting a job doing that. And for me, it was like, how can I get a job where I can just keep drawing? Um, and uh, funnily enough, growing up in L.A., if you love to draw and you like to draw representationally, uh, the film industry is like, you know, it's like the guy in the trench coat in the right. in the shadow <laughs> in the alley. It's like, hey, kid, come here. Right, I got right. something for you, you know, because, uh, you know, I mean, I. The art, again, the art world has changed so much now since it was when I was growing up. But growing up in the 80s in L.A., the art world, to a, to a, like a 10-year-old kid who loved to draw representationally, you know, you'd, I'd see work. You'd see work from time to time that was narrative or you'd see work from time to time that had some kind of uh, objective, um, you know, image going on in it. But a lot of it was, you know, very heavily conceptual and a lot of it was very heavily you know, either late modernism or kind of early postmodernism. And it was like, this stuff's really interesting, but I don't see myself fitting into this. Right. You know, as a, as a, as a kid who's still learning how to draw from like, you know, uh, comic books and, and uh, a film, uh, the making of, you know, art of such and such film book. Those were the ones that was like, okay, I, you know, there's King Kong. There's a, there's a, there's a dinosaur, Somebody right. had to draw that stuff, and that stuff isn't real. So what do I have to learn to have to, you know, to get to do this? And it was also that set of, of problem solving of like, okay, I also have to learn about architecture, and I have to learn about the body, and I have to learn about light, and that fed into another set of obsessions, which was just like, how does everything work? Like, why, you know, how do, how come the fork doesn't fall out of my hand, and how come the, 
the tires on the car don't just slide around and they push the thing forward. I didn't really realize that that's what it, it, that interest was there until I was older, but there was a point at which those two things kind of dovetailed. Um, and I, you know, I, I went to, to undergrad uh, to study film because I started working in the film industry when I was probably 15 or 16 um, doing early you know, practical makeup effects and, and stuff for uh, Stan Winston Studios, which did, you know, they were like the, the, the yeah, pre-digital physical effects, effects right? house. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Predator and Aliens and Terminator and Jurassic Park, like all the physical stuff. And that was such an incredible group of people because it was like, it was, it was the same skill set that had been used since the Renaissance of right. like molding clay and doing charcoal drawing you know like graphite drawings yeah uh to create all these worlds and it was like these are the tools that i love and these are the stories that i've kind of been raised on and it was like a no-brainer it wasn't until um i was halfway through undergrad when i went uh, to italy for a study abroad uh where the the kind of the pieces started to click in a different way Um, right and i started to question you know all the the a future working in the, the film industry and sequential media. Well, nothing will uh, seduce you towards artwork than going on a trip to Italy. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, I, like, you know, the motherland when it comes to that stuff. Yeah. I, I thank God I gave myself permission to just, huh, I, you know, you pick up the pamphlet. It's like meeting in the lunchroom about studying art in Italy. Maybe I should check this out. And it changed the course of my life. It was Saatchi, right? Didn't yeah, you do the Saatchi program? I did the yeah. Saatchi program. Yeah. yeah, our school where I teach does that. They they work. You know, a lot of the kids go over there, and they they always come back. You know, changed. It's just a different. It's like before that and after that. Yeah. Yep. You know, and it's funny because you know I've been to Italy not much. Like I've only been a couple of times, and you know I showed at Verona, and you know it's it's nice, but I haven't been to Rome, and I haven't seen a lot of that. You know, I I went to Venice and saw amazing stuff to Guggenheim, and but I haven't done, you know, like those places. And um, but the people who go there and see that stuff, they come back and it's like they're just, you know, mind blown. You know, it's it's like especially as American kids, you know, our conception of time. It's like, oh my, was your house built before World War Two or after World <laughs> right. War Two? You know. Uh, and then even in Florence, it's like, you know, you hear about the Etruscans, but really what you're seeing is stuff that was like built with 14th century wealth, you know? Yeah. And then you go to Rome and it's stuff that was 2000 years older than that, you know, or, or at least in Greece, Rome's a little, not quite 2000, you know, but it's more or less, you're in the same, you know, ballpark. And it's one of the first, it's the first time I ever, I ever got to feel what, what was later described to me as deep time. And even yeah. then, 2,000 years is not that deep time for humans, but for geo- geologically, that's like at the blink of an eye. But right. in terms of a human being, like that, that was, that was, you know, going to the Coliseum, being on the floor of the Coliseum, it was like, it, it like, you know, there's a, there's a kind of like bubble of locality that our perceptual system has uh, wired itself around, you know, right. like, that thing that's like a quarter mile away on the horizon might be a threat, but it certainly won't be for the next five minutes, you know? Right. And then that thing that's within like spear distance could get me in any second. And then there's like hand to hand and 
hand to mouth and you know and then there's reproductive distance like that's about it and in terms of time it's you know it's the range of time is not really that far outside of that in terms of how we perceive and memory and all that but so when you're in the presence of something that was recognizably tooled by hand 2000 years before it it takes all that local wiring and just snips it all for a second you know right. and like the something beyond a single human life beyond your life beyond the reach of an individual like just floods into the cracks for a second and the second you feel that it's like oh my god where do i gotta go to get more of this you know and we actually on that same that study same study broad trip my friends a couple of friends of mine and i um hopped on a train and we went down to greece uh got a little more of it and then we were like we gotta go back further and we hopped on a ferry and we went to turkey and we spent a month in turkey and it was that was like Oh my God! You know, it was, yeah. we just kept going down this rabbit hole of deep time, and it was, it, cha- you know, it changed me as an artist and as a visual thinker, but really just in, as a as a as a man and as a boy and as a as a human, and and to see people, you know, like carving in stone, <laughs> embedding into mosaics, and and painting into plaster and onto canvas, like trying to get at you know, embedding empathy into materials and trying to get somehow get at moments of respite and revelation about the seriousness of the human condition going back as far as materials can last, you know? And it was like, all right, I don't, I don't know if I want to go make another Jurassic Park movie. (laughs) Not that, you know, not that those are, not that that wasn't a wonderful experience, but it was like, I I want to slow down here a second and, and, and think about um, what dialogue do I want to be a part of? Right. That's It's interesting though, that because I'm, I know there's some people who see work like that, that feels almost alien in a way because the, Mm. the methods to produce it are so, you know, like when we learn in a painting class, we'll learn some glazing. We'll learn some techniques. But a lot of that stuff is just like baffling. You know what yeah, I mean? I, oh, it's like looking at a car. It's like someone going, you know, hey, build yourself a car. You right. know, like I, I wouldn't even. How do, yeah, that's do impossible. Right. It would take an entire team of people. And, you know, and and that's the. And in some cases, it did take entire teams, you know, of right. people to produce right. these things. But, you know, you look at. Uh, I remember. Um, one of the most magical days for me, you know, you look at, you look at, uh, sketches, uh, you know, of the Italian masters, you know, you go to the Sistine Chapel and that's the one, right. Cause it's like, you know, uh, I, I, I know that, I know that, you know, uh, Rubens had a studio and I know that, um, Michelangelo had, uh, teams of horses to carry his marble, all, but the, embedded in the consciousness of, you know, our history is like Da Vinci, one guy on his back doing the, the frescoes of the Sistine Chapel. Right. And that's 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 like uh, one person couldn't you couldn't ask any more of one person to produce something so mind bogglingly in hum, in like incomprehensible for a single person to create. It was when I was at the the Uffizi and I had uh, one of the professors there. They had like a one of the professors at Saatchi had gotten uh, per- permission for me to go into the drawing room at the Uffizi and to just go through some of their drawing books 
um, with work that you know isn't on display. Yeah. And there was a the collection of uh, little Goya drawings. Nice. That I was able to go through, you know, and they, someone's watching me, and I had like little gloves as we're like moving drawings around, and the simplicity. It was like you could completely understand how a person can make these things. Yes, you know, his etchings, some of them are so developed, they, they take on a kind of otherworldly quality. But a simple ink drawing, some yeah. of the simple ink drawings, it was like, okay, I can do this. We can start here and go right, from here. It's kind of like, I, I don't know if you ever saw um, uh, Stephen Van Zandt from uh, um, The Soprano, talk about The Sopranos and talk about music and they were asking him you know outside of playing silvio you know you've been a musician your whole life you know i gotta ask you the question who's better the beatles or the rolling stones and he was like oh god everybody asked me this question but i'll tell you what he goes the beatles he's like the beatles changed music forever and they opened uh, the beatles like opened the door and walked through and were instantly like stars in a newly bright sky yeah. The Rolling Stones were the ones who stood in the door and let everybody in. Right. He's right, like, I, right. we saw the Beatles and we're like, how could, no one could ever, how did they do this? And then the Rolling Stones, he's, he's like, we saw the Rolling Stones and they're like, yeah, I could do that. I, I could dress up like that and play guitar like that. I think right, I could be right. in a band, you know? So he was like, they were both necessary, but only one of them was the one that said, you can do this too. And for me, it was that juxtaposition between the grandeur of some of those Florentine uh, you know, sculptural installations and just the, the, the architectural, I mean, you go to, go to, if you, when you, when and if, if and when, but let's say when you go to Rome and you yeah. go to, um, uh, I don't know, take your pick, any one of the major sculptural installations there. Uh, it's like, how, how could anything that you want to go to your little studio and create connect with any of this? You know, th this is like, it is alien. This is not for human consent. It, it wasn't made by a human. It's not for people. It's something beyond that. <laughs> it was that moment of like working with those little Goya drawings. It was like, this, this is, this guy can, this guy's letting me through the door. That's like the access point to it. Yeah, right? Because it really otherwise was. it's too daunting. It was too daunting. It was like watching a guy solo climb Mount Everest, you right. know, without any ropes, you know? Uh, and if you think that that's where you have to start, yeah, uh, you, you won't. Um, but it was that moment with like pen and ink, light and dark, you know, it was, or like the little Rubens sketches, you know, for some of his paintings where they're like. Da Vinci too, like, right? Yeah, Da Vinci too. I Those mean, da like wave ones that are da Vinci's, really cool. I mean, Da Vinci's hand is just, you know, Da Vinci's hand is Da Vinci's hand. But some of um, Rembrandt's or, or Ru even Rubens' like little pen and ink compositional studies are like, yeah, I, I used to do this in high school. Like, this is just, right. it's like somebody spilled coffee on a piece of paper, you know, like yeah. that's, that line's a person and that line's a person and this line is a person lying down. Like, oh, okay, I could start there too, you know? Right. Uh, and, th and those were, those were, you could feel somebody through time, like, come on, like, take another step, kid. You right, can, right. You got to start. Yeah. So. Do you think that the, um, I would like to think that that work at that point, just like when you listen to music or like classical music, like a Bach, like a fugue or something like that, there's a certain sublime to that. Like, it's almost like the Hudson River School people looking at the landscape and saying like, wow, that's like, you know, otherworldly. It's just, you stand in awe of it. And that, 
that work, whether it's, you know, the Rembrandts, the Michelangelo's, the Tiepolo's, hold that kind of, you know, in retrospect. Do you feel that now in our current age that that sublime has been transmuted into sort of like digital media and new media and and kind of like technology and the zeros and ones have become this sort of like vast unknown kind of like awe standing in awe amidst the the breadth of like all that's possible in that sort of like digital realm maybe i I mean i've certainly you know i mean there's something about um going into um uh you know the duomo or something uh or some of the some of the large uh or or going into like uh going into like uh the pantheon or something like that uh where actual like the the air inside the space changes like the like the it's like they're containing these spaces are actually big enough and they're grand enough where they're containing uh enough atmosphere for you to see depth in the kind of, in an illusionistic way, like, you know, they're trying to create a space where the kind of tricks of illusionism that you'd see in a two dimensional piece, you know, like a kind of a sfumato or something like that. They're, they're containing enough air in these spaces and then pumping them full of like incense where there's like, they've taken, two-dimensional painting effects into the real and i know that there was a conversation between the two but there's something about the grand the way that the light is designed to kind of you know hit the floor at the right spot and illuminate you know those are authored spaces you know they're totally authored uh and the place where definitely in terms of uh 20th century art form uh you know a a large amount of two-dimensional work especially in the realm of painting a lot of it was like really heavily invested in deauthoring stuff. Right. Yeah. The the place where that level of that grandeur of authorship uh found its home was in cinema. Uh right. you know, there there's arguments about authorship in terms of the auteur theory and collaborative theory, but you know, whatever. The conversation was being about authorship was being had on that level in cinema. And now, uh, you know, of course we've all seen the 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 democratization of images that the internet has provided just it you know it's a lot of it is just a fire hose of uh of of uninteresting product but in terms of where really interesting conversations about authorship is taking place on a grand level is is taking place there between interactive stuff and between you know the the way that um sequential storytelling has kind of taken on a whole new life uh in the digital realm and then with vr and ar and you know i i think that we're still in this really interesting i'm not much of an early adopter usually i might sniff around things to kind of like get the vocabulary but i tend to wait so something like nfts are not a realm that i've really sunk my teeth into Uh, i'm just kind of waiting to see how what when we get beyond the speculative and when we get beyond the kind of hyper-financialization of them, when right. that conversation about authorship or no authorship can flood that space in new and interesting ways, I think it'll be really exciting. You know, there's some amazing, some of the best NFT stuff is all stuff that's data-driven, like data, data visualization stuff that has never been able to exist in any other format, in any other medium. Yeah. And so 
it it has the the feel of that kind of some um is it uh Rafik Andal's work um, oh the turkish artist yeah that, that yeah just that got, stuff is amazing that, right and but the, the scale of those things takes on some of that architectural and that luminosity the yeah. grandeur of those authored spaces i mean talk about the uh the Hagia sophia you know or, or the blue mosque like you know those things are all in the backdrop of the conversation um but again it's data driven and it's an emergent authorship outside of any kind of like one individual so i think there's some really exciting stuff going on there it's just that there's not that many people who've kind of taken it to that because uh, it's, it's a high bar to pass because i mean you did have like nation states and the entire wealth of the church behind a lot of these projects. So in that sense, you know, I, not, not that I, the the kind of corporatization of the moment is, is, has been a little bit distasteful, but, you know, in terms of, um, you know, what Musk and Bezos are doing in terms of trying to kickstart like a real, um, uh, a real, economy uh, like an orbital economy um and getting people up into space to kind of like see you know again the that popping of that bubble of the self you know that six foot zone of uh that we're wired around like momentarily suspending that the way that the interior of the Sistine Chapel does the way that the interior of the Hagia Sophia does the way that the you know uh any of these kind of grand sublime authored structures and even 2d images like that's that's also and that's incredibly fit that's that's real that's that's not virtual it's totally real yeah. uh, i mean meaning like it's you know it's of the actual world but it wouldn't it's facilitated through digital tool sets so you know i think the next hundred years is going to or, or 20 years is going to be um uh like telling in terms of um, how, what level of, um, not just about authorship, but like how that technology is you is really used. Is it really used to like engage in a deep way, uh, like sinking some real new footholds into our understanding of like how to process and cope with being a human being the way that you know these art historical moments that we keep referencing seem to continuously be able to do or uh is it gonna kind of skirt around that or never find its foothold and the technology if the technology on its own is the voice will it ever be able to directly access that kind of or generate that kind of empathy that or the sublime empathy that these works that we're talking about are doing I, that i don't know i don't i don't know if there's a I, I i don't think i can think of like a really solid reason as to why that wouldn't happen i think it's just about um how uh how creative and fearless uh the artists are that employ the technology the way you know the same level of fearness um or or a similar level of fearness that uh that I, I feel like the artists that I tend to respond to uh, have given themselves permission to employ. Yeah, I feel like it probably could both happen too. Yeah, I, well, I think you're. I think we're entering the world where all possible things are going to happen. Right, yeah, like you're, you're going right. to have the 
the TikTok or whatever, like the surface enjoyment right. user interface. And then you're going to have the people underneath who are, I mean, and that's probably like any movement of work of art or whatever, you know, there was all this stuff happening on the surface. And then there was Vito Acconci underneath like the gallery floor or something. You know? <laughs> right. Like, you know what I mean? Like there was yeah, the yeah. movements of stuff that, in retrospect, you look at it and you say, wow, that was really pushing the envelope of what we think about what creativity and what these ideas could be. But at the same time, it was, you know, it was kind of underground in a way. No pun intended. I, or, you know, just like it, maybe it wasn't at the fore at the time necessarily. Right. So, Well, and, and I think you're right about that. And like it's, it's, not, it's not what comes next that is going to define the immediate future it's what's going to come after the thing that comes next that puts the thing that comes next into sharp relief right <laughs> you know and so i'm i'm excited for the stuff i'm probably not going to be around to see yeah yeah it's... unfortunately <laughs> who knows though you know yeah you know well know. it seems to be all happening faster and faster right yeah until well, i guess we hit the singularity and then it's all all at once <laughs> yeah oof well, you, so, you know, in getting into some of your work, I mean, there's, um, I usually try to wait an hour or so before I tap. Oh, good. Loosen the tongue of it, huh? Yeah. I, yeah. So, um, you know, I think we may not to, to draw a parallel, but I think in a lot of our work, there is a little touch of dystopia and a little touch yeah. of, you know, of being overwhelmed or the impending something, you know, that, of kind of like I'm always trying to like toe the line between beauty and pulling people in and then you know planting a seed of distrust or like something may be off here in our world so and I think I've seen a lot of your work that seems to touch those um, ideas yeah I I, you know I've gone I've I've gone through a bunch of labels over the years Um, there was the my early kind of, um, I was I was making my early uh, first couple of years were these tiny little invented landscape paintings that were kind of like people kind of described them as like a like a funeral dirge for a kind of lonely, uh, distant relationship to the environment around us, uh, and then I made a bunch of kind of like. Uh, war paintings, you know, kind of like urban disaster paintings. And then I made a bunch of paintings about kind of like larger scale climate stuff. And then I made a bunch of like post-apocalyptic paintings. And then I made a bunch of these weird, fantastical, destructive Colossus paintings. And then I made these weird semi-autobiographical self-portrait kind of sci-fi narrative paintings. So I, I keep getting these different labels, but at the core of them is that tension, that dystopian tension of uh, like a deep, deep, urgent anxiety about our relationship to our immediate environment and, you know, kind of like the non-local, um, the desire to want to e- extend outside the local to the non-local, if only to feel how, what what even greater level of urgency there is. You right. know? Uh, but the the recent stuff, I mean, the really recent, like the stuff I'm working on right now, the stuff like post my surgery is a little, and no, no, not many people, if anybody have really seen it yet, because I haven't shown it yet, but the, the dystopian is certainly there, but I've kind of tried to turn it 
on its head in the way that like uh, for 20 years I was making work about you know our you know uh, the kind of buzzwords of you know uh, environmental anxiety and the relationship between the natural and the technological or the natural and the artificial and and really what it all kind of boiled down to was you know a, a kind of a deep feeling that you know that 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 our kind of neuroperceptual system uh, evolved and wired itself around a very specific set of environments. They're the environments that we were living in, you know, uh, a quarter million years ago. Um, and our brains kind of coded themselves to the level, the set level of expectations, the, the, the threat response system and the kind of reproductive health. So they all wired themselves around those environments. And if we didn't all grow up and we didn't all, you know, evolve in the exact same place, but we tended to look for similar environments to root ourselves in. Right. And the paintings came out of this deep anxiety of knowing that that environment that we wired our brains around is gone. Uh, and so our brains are in our, you know, our inner selves are looking for cues and are looking for kind of uh, stimulus that um, is out of balance with what our deep wiring is expecting to find in the spaces that we inhabit. Uh, and so all the paintings kind of shared that underlying dystopian anxiety. Um, but that's, the reason... That's so important. Like, I feel like that... I don't that I don't made that that's like a light bulb thing for me. I just feel like that is a really interesting thing to tap into as far as like the way we're programmed for so long and then that switch. You know what yep. I mean? Yeah. Almost like a metaphor of that could be, you know, painting as this activity of recording things like yeah. whether it's portraits uh, or whatever and then all of a sudden the camera shows up yep. and it's like what every the Every image for 50,000 years was a handmade image. And right. there was no conception of a non-handmade image. No, it was, that's what right. it was for, you know. And right. you could tweak things, you know. You could put things in there, sneak it in or whatever. But it was sure. really about recording something. And then the photo. Yeah. And then overnight, then we have the mechanically produced image. And right. now we're putting in sharp relief what this thing is. Because we just saw it as, you know, a singular thing. And now it's got a buddy called the mechanically made image right and we have to invent a, a dialogue between the two that didn't exist uh and in, and in, and freed and it gave, it freed up the first you know the the first impulse into all new territory but it also caused like a shattering you know of yeah. of of uh you know like uh, i'm i i've i've kind of uh, made peace with this a long time ago, but I, like I am absolutely wired to be like a representational kind of closed form image maker, you know, right. narrative closed form representational image maker, um, which would probably put me in a really perfect place, like in the 14th, 15th, going all the way back to the negative 25th century, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so it took me a while to figure out how I wanted to like translate my ideas through that kind of pictorial wiring in a way that I could find a part apart from myself in the contemporary dialogue, you know, that, that didn't, uh, that didn't, um, 
that wasn't repositioned or wasn't, um, you know, that, that I didn't load myself with self-doubt over being surrounded by people who didn't necessarily, who weren't necessarily wired for that kind of picture making, you know, and finding a joy in conversation in the community that, that is represented by like all of those different ways of being an artist post that shattering. Right. Uh, and that's incredibly exciting, but you know, it's occasionally frustrating when you're trying to figure out like, but what do I do? You know, <laughs> that, that age old question. But the, but the, the thing that flipped for me with, I was after my surgery and definitely also like after going through four years, five years with the recent political landscape and two years of COVID and then my surgery, it was like, Oh my God, I've been making paintings about like trying to embed that, that anxiety into a picture and get the viewer to empathize with that anxiety for 20 years. Uh, But it's meant staying in this incredibly dystopian space. And I don't know if I can do that. I'm just, I'm just like, I'm not, I, I want to keep making the pictures, but my understanding of like, or my expectations about what's possible with that set of wiring changed. Yeah. Um, or maybe just kind of was, I made peace with a certain level of lowered expectations. And I thought, what, what would happen if I gave myself permission to rather than keep illustrating this world where that wiring is out of sync with its surroundings, what would a world look like if that wiring was resynced with its surroundings, and not not by going backwards, you know, but but by like uh, the proposition that either through self-adjustment or radical adjustment of the environment, how could I relink that inner landscape and the outer landscape in a way where they're actually in sync with each other? And they're not at odds. You know, the microbial environment is not trying to destroy us. The macrobial environment, we're not at odds with. How alien would that look? Um, So it was kind of a a total flipping of the position. And I thought about, you know, there's so... I, I thought of my position in an art historical dialogue as like, you know, I'm... In a literal sense, you know, you have the Hudson, uh, like the, like I don't know, we, I don't, I don't want to get attacked by a Hudson River historian, but like, there was like a, a <laughs> they're rough, out there. a they're rough waiting, group, they're, they're, they're waiting, waiting on me, <laughs> but there's like a rough group of like fourth gen, let's call them fourth generation, a Hudson River school painters, maybe third, fourth generation, that kind of overlapped with early modernism, and right. their tools, their 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 wiring didn't fit the dialogue. Uh, and some of them changed uh, and found a kind of a new language for themselves, but a, a, a select few literally moved to the West Coast and founded the early visual effects industry for the silent film era. And they took that tool set with them into this new space of authorship surrounding light and narrative, you know, and it was the film industry. Yeah. Uh, and I pick up my part of that story then because I, you know, I mean, there was like, we had LACMA and like the Huntington Museum, but that was about it in LA, you know? And I wasn't surrounded by galleries. I wasn't surrounded by museums, but I was surrounded by like video stores and showbiz movie theaters and showbiz (laughs) and video games and comic books. And so 
you know, those, some of the first romantic landscape paintings I ever saw were actually like matte paintings in movies, right. you know. Uh, I didn't know what I was looking at, but once I started to piece it together and like followed this trail back to Hudson River School and then Northern European romantic landscape painting and Hieronymus Bosch and you keep going back further, you know, I, there was so much of this narrative that I was interested in or this exploration embedded in landscape painting. Uh, But there was always this one era, you know, like in the Rococo of where the landscape has like zero anxiety to it. You know, it's like like that. Yeah. yeah, Fragonard, Boucher, you know, where, where, where like people are like in are half naked and they're in swings and there's like little kids hiding in the bush. Like there's no snakes about to jump out and bite people. There's no burning volcanoes in the background. You know, the environment is there as a backdrop for our kind of like, like upper class pleasure. An escape, right? And it, yeah. An like escape, in any war torn city, there's a speakeasy somewhere where people of, are living Of course, it up. some, I think some of it was done in an escapist way, but some of it was done uh, literally just as a kind of uh, appropriated decorative uh, or a narrative. It was a genre unto itself. It was just this uh, anxiety-free kind of like bubble of the first real collection of wealth we had seen that was outside of the church, you know, right. and what it produced. And the paintings are they're about a lot of other things, of course. But yeah. one of the things that they are also about is that there seems to be it's the first paintings in a long time where people were not afraid of the natural world in a way that they had been in every other history, every other genre of painting. Right. And I thought, man, that's such a weird place. And that also happened literally right before the Industrial Revolution. Like there was this brief moment where people were like, oh, the snakes are all gone and the world is still green. <laughs> and then right after that, like... Yeah, the snakes being gone is a bad sign, and now everything else is gone, too. Right. Uh, and that, that was that last moment right before the kind of dystopian re-erupted through, you know, the pictures of the Industrial Revolution and this new man-made hellscape. So I thought, you know, how can I, how can I make... I want to make pictures where I can flip this whole position on its head where the people and the world in the, in the picture have none of that fear of the snakes in the grass the way that the Rococo paintings did. Didn't. But you as the viewer have no identification with the signifiers of this landscape because it's totally alien to you and the behaviors of the people in the landscape in the paintings are totally alien to you. So now I'm pushing that anxiety out of the picture into the space between the viewer and the painting as an object. Which is... Um, not to interject, but which yeah. is really funny because if you think about it, that is a level of abstraction. I, absolutely. For sure. That's the, a great it, point. The, the conceptual side of the environment and how we relate to it, yep. which is so much about point. landscape painting of what that is about. It's about our relationship to the environment. That is abstracted through a, a disassociation from that familiarity of landscape which becomes the element of abstraction in a work. So it still looks representational. but And really, that's what all abstraction is about. It's like removing that one layer of familiarity. A lot of time, it's the detail yeah. of the representation. Yeah, yeah. Like you could take any image and zoom into a certain area of it and be, make an abstraction. And it's yep. completely housed in realism 
or representation, but we're just not familiar with it because it's zoomed in too far or blur anything and it becomes, you know. So that's what you're doing conceptually is thinking about, you know, dystopia, utopia, how to blur our familiarity with the relationship to the landscape and that becomes abstraction. Oh, that's such a great point. You're an abstract Uh, painter. You know what? (laughs) You heard it here, folks. (laughs) But I'm, I'm going to spend I, the second half of my career as an abstract abstract painter. painter. There you go. It's all semantics. <laughs> no, but it's beautiful because it's the story, you know. And we're storytellers, and we tell, you know, uh, the 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 biggest moments of revelation um, are the are the stories that you tell yourself, thinking, you know, on the fly, like I'm the author, so I know what's going to happen. So there's no surprises here. And then before you know it, you're putting words in your own mouth and going. Oh, I had no idea I had that inside of, you know, right. uh, that, that to me is, um, that's, that's, it's a, it's a simple, but incredibly complicated part of being human. So, yeah, that, that's a great point. Yeah. It's a, it's all the perspective of it too. You know, we get so like you, you were talking earlier about like, um, your labels, you know, and it's yeah. funny cause humans do that stuff. Like we, yeah. we have to label things, you know, and there, there could be someone who spends their whole painting life being like i don't want to be a representational painter it's bs you know and i'm more about purity of form and they're just painting these white circles on blue fields and it's like that's what i do man this is about you know white circles and blue fields. and then like one day they're walking home from the studio and they look up and it's a full moon and a blue sky deep blue yeah. sky and they're like holy yeah. shit i'm a realist yeah. <laughs> yep i've been a, i've been a dedicated purist realist this whole time right yeah <laughs> Yeah, a, an ex, a, a fundamentalist realist. Yeah, that's funny. well. The, a a, a quasi utopian result of that could be this um, sentiment that no matter what we're trying to find as people, there's a there's a thread that connects us all, which is you know probably linked to what you were talking about earlier about sort of evolutionary desires or understandings of who we are and what we are through impulsion of of you know the the impulse impulse to eat into to love or whatever it is or to reproduce you know like these things that are within us that just tie in all our activities together in some weird way you know yeah i i think about that a lot and it's it's and that's one i think has been one of the harder parts to kind of process a lot of the um, division, you know, culturally in the last couple decades, it's like, I thought we were all taking in the same information and we're, but we're producing such radically different inner narratives, you know, and then you realize like, Oh, that, but that we're not taking in all the same information. It's being, you know, for some people it's being tailored or it's being selected. It's being kind of, uh, reauthored and redirected. And, and, uh, for other people, uh, there's a rejection of anything that isn't, um, you know, directly experienced. And so from a, a pretty similar biological standing point, you know, it's like a, it's like a, one of those pachinko machines, you know, it's like <laughs> this, the, the pegs are the same all right. the way down. You know, it looks like, ah, it's just a straight drop, but you know, depending on where you start, it's a completely different ending. And, um, and that can be, you know, the kind of like sheer, um you know that that the kind of 
underst or the realization that you know we really don't i mean this is a pessimistic kind of interpretation but that on some level because i am always stuck in me and you are always stuck in you mm -hmm. you know we're always purely local to ourselves like there is no there's no getting non-local right uh uh that we don't really share experiences what we share is a mutually agreed upon reproducible vocabulary that like is about you know that allows us to kind of tell each other stories that may or may not kind of like point people in different directions about what the uh, like little hints little flashes of what's happening on the interiority of an individual and that ultimately like storytelling and picture making and art making in general on on some fundamental level is like a deep desire to just want to take that like on uh externalizable interiority we all have and somehow figure out a way to externalize it right right that's communication right to get that's, it are well, you to communicate really yep and then they communicate beyond the verbal uh, right. because of the limitations of that mutually agreed upon, you know, shared vocabulary. Right. Um, and I think that that, that was one of the challenges for myself with the recent work too, was, you know, uh, I have such at this, like with you, you know, you've been making work for, for over 20 years. I've been making work for 20 years and, uh, we, we, we talk so much about, the grammar or the vocabulary, or we talk about our own paintings and our own uh, process as a language. And uh, what would it be like to look at one of your own paintings without all the that pre-approved shorthand? You know, right. it's like how. What would it really be like to see a Bruegel or a Hieronymus Bosch? without having like we were talking about earlier without having spent your entire childhood watching movies right you know the inc insane purity of the experience the locality of the experience of being a 16th century person seeing a 16th century handmade image you know about a 16th century story uh and the sheer impossibility to close that distance as a person living in the 21st century. You know? Right. Uh, I think we get more out of it through the combined experience and through yeah, you, that uh, you might be right. association. Uh, it's like it, if you hear a song, I guarantee you someone can find a music that was made by indigenous people in the, you know, the 1600s or something. And you could still connect to it. You may not have the cultural reference to it or whatever, but you would feel it. You would sure. hear it. Especially with music. Uh, especially with music. It's so primal. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think, to, to your point, you know, could we, do we get more out of seeing it removed from its original context? You know, maybe we do. But I would love to... It's the impossibility of like I would love to be have been able to see it in its original context to be able to truly feel the difference between the two. Oh, right, it's an yeah. impo it's an impossible position, you know. It's it's just it's a re representation again of that desire to want to like have more direct of an access to the world around me than my you know quarter million half a million year old uh, uh, hominid wiring 
right. allows me to have, despite the fact that I'm very, very thankful that <laughs> our visual system is, is as sophisticated as it is. And, you know, right. we can pick apart the difference between uh, an orange that is on the orange side of orange versus an orange that's moving towards the yellow side of orange. You know, <coughs> that's incredibly right. sophisticated. And we've done so much with this tiny little slit in, you know, to see... Uh, the reality in front of us. Um, but for me, it's like laying in bed, waking at, at night going like, yeah, but if I could just, if I could just pry that slit open a little bit more, right. what's there, you know? God, and thinking about the visual side of it and talking about color, like you just did with the orange, it's fascinating too, because like if everyone were blind, we would still want to communicate and we would still have this, we could hear and we could feel and sense and all there would be creativity. But I it's think so, so funny you said that. Uh, no, sorry, finish it. Finish oh, point. no, I was just going to say it would be a totally different experience. Like we live and, and, you know, so much of the visual is so immediate to us because just like in hearing and smelling and, you know, it's a sense that we just see and we navigate through seeing more than we do through hearing and other things yeah, like I that mean, the, the, it's our first the, way. It's you know? the biggest bandwidth, you know, yeah. the visual information is the dominant at, by far. But why uh, is it funny? Well, I would know because I was thinking about this very question today because, uh, you know, I mean, b bad science fiction films and novels aside, you know, I was thinking today, like, uh, if everybody went deaf today, how much would the society that we had to build moving forward change? It would change a bit, I think but not nearly as much as if, you know, just imagine like the city that's in the New York that's in front of us today. If everybody went deaf, but we still like woke up tomorrow and was like, oh, we got it. We got to move forward as a civilization. Like, you know, how radical would the changes be versus everybody waking up tomorrow being blind? Yeah. And how radical a civilization would, it would be almost unrecognizable. And, and I mean, provided that we were able to make the changes, but that that's such a fascinating you know it's it's we're we've set up the world around us for a, a like the, the highest bandwidth but i always go back to when i had uh, i had a um uh, uh, uh sound design teacher in undergrad and you know because i'm so visually dominant i've tried to get you know i've tried to learn guitar a bunch of times I had a brief romance with the saxophone like it's never stuck but drawing and painting I'm obsessed with color tonality like these are things that I as much as I know I still am learning new things every day I'm obsessed with it so I recognize that I'm biased towards the visuals but I had a, an, a sound design teacher in undergrad who said have you ever been in the kitchen making dinner you can't see the TV but you turn the volume up and you can hear it and you can still follow most of what's happening in the movie. If you turn the sound off and stare at the TV screen without the closed captioning on, you, you miss an incredible amount of the film. More importantly, you, you miss a lot of the human experience, you know, because all, all the communicative aspect too. So I think about that a lot, despite the fact that, you know, I feel like we'd have to radically change the world more if we all went deaf. You made a great point, and I think about that a lot, and it relates to picture making as well. You know, what are the things, what are the things that uh, 
uh, I think are necessary to the picture because of my biases that really don't need to be there for the viewer to have, forget the experience I want them to have, but to have just a rich experience with the picture right. in and of itself. Like when, how much of how much of my investment is the picture is purely there to kind of satisfy my own obsessions and doesn't make it a better picture. And then it's like, well, what is a better picture? You know, you can get lost that's, in that. Yeah, that's the thing I was going to say. It's, it's, I don't, personally, I don't think it's about better or worse. I think it's about you. So yeah. you are the one who That's wants first. to get it through that way. So, yeah. you know, there could be an abstract painter who wants to talk about formal issues and they're just terrible. So that just the painting doesn't <laughs> sing. It doesn't teach you anything. And there could be someone who deals with representation, but there's formal elements in it that just sing, you know, and yeah. vice versa. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I, I think it's it's all dependent on the voice. And that's what makes it amazing to have different artists you know and all these different voices it's just like the same thing with bands you know it's like some people can make way more emotional music that's instrumental and other people just need those lyrics and that narrative that's how they tell their story you yeah, know and the, or that's sure. the way they personally connect to it so it, it's not necessarily the the vehicle it's the the driver you know what i mean well and there's um this gets into some stuff I was thinking about recently about authorship and you're talking about the driver, you know, mm-hmm. um, the person behind the, the, the author of the v, of the experience for the viewer. There's, um, a, a new, um, I'm, I'm going to blank on his name cause it's like brand new to the, the author's brand new to me. Um, but there's a brand new kind of, uh, th- theory about consciousness um, uh, that is, it's called like the free, free energy principle or free energy, uh, model of consciousness, which is pretty simple. And it it probably isn't going to sound that surprising, but it relates to what we're talking about. Basically like the, the brain being, uh, essentially a prediction engine, you know, like watch out for this. Don't do that. This is going to happen. Keep your hand off that. There's all this wiring that's constantly whirring away, that is essentially based around survival and reproduction. Right. Uh, And it's, it's, it's a prediction engine. And when the brain's model of reality is matching up with reality, we actually have, it's, you know, think about driving home from upstate late at night, the road's laid out before you. There's no traffic. There's no threats. You're just driving. And before you know it, it's like, I don't know, I wasn't even paying attention for the last 10 minutes, but I'm safe and I'm on the road and I'm 15 minutes closer to the city. Right. The brain's model of reality and reality have totally sunk up and it has essentially lessened your consciousness. And it's only when the brain's model of reality and reality itself really diverge that consciousness truly becomes active and it's in those moments where the the inner model and the outer model are divergent where humans are most consciously alive Uh, because the brain is always trying to minimize or maximize the free energy through um, syncing those models together so to that point it's it's when you're driving you know through intense traffic or you know driving in a video game through something or navigating you know a subway platform where you you can't afford 
a single moment where that inner model and the outer model are divergent that consciousness is really really awake and it's like that in the studio sometimes you know there are those moments where you know a half hour goes by an hour goes by and you're you're kind of um expectations about what it is that you should be doing or your your kind of inner uh uh you know, you're, you're, you're essentially your hands are working without active engagement from your mind. Flow state. Um, yeah. Flow state essentially yeah. is, is, is what it is. Uh, there's a kind of, uh, disassociation that can happen. Uh, isn't this and, all leading up to meditation basically? Well, no, I, what I, what I was leading up to was that idea that, um, uh, as a, as both of an author and an audience member, it's oftentimes, you know, you're like, you're, I'm, I'm looking at a painting, I'm reading a book, I'm listening to a song, I'm watching a film. And it's not until those moments where the author has done something that so diverges from my own inner model of what normally is done in this medium, like this song, this book, this, you know, that hook, or this bridge in this song, you know, this transition in this film, or this moment, you know, like somebody's pinky finger in a painting. You're, per, you're just kind of glancing over things and you arrive at a moment where the decisions made are so different than your, the decisions that you would make under similar circumstances that this flood of uh, engagement happens with the thing. You know, whether it was directed by the author or not, it's it's a, a kind of a model for how the consciousness like w what are those moments we were talking before this is kind of like a long uh, uh, we're, we're well away from my divergent point at this point but you would say you know those moments in a painting that hook the viewer and begin that engagement process you know and and whether or not they're they're dictated beforehand they do happen how they happen and how different they can be for different people but at the end of the day um, the model by which the viewer gets engaged by the piece has a, a, a set structure to it. Right. You know, uh, it's just how these variables can match or diverge from the viewer's kind of like unconscious expectations that can produce that fire, uh, that fireball moment. Um, yeah, I think and, I've had those in both ways, though. Like, I know what you're talking about. Like, I feel like I've had that that fireball moment when I've heard something that I've never heard before. Like, I always, I like to use music as an analogy. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's like it's the first perfect. time I heard Free Jazz by Ornette Coleman, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> you know? Sure. It was just like, wow, you could do that, you know? And it was just so, like, mind-altering in a way. But then there, I'll listen to an old blues song like an old Muddy Waters song that talks about like problems with a relationship that I could relate to. And I, I feel a connection there. That's like a fire. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's that, um, you know, the, the, the realization of, uh, you know, that we're not in this alone. Uh, yeah. That's so important. Right. Oh, like you deal with that shit too. Like it's such <laughs> yeah. a good, or when you see something in a certain way in a painting, 
and like, I don't know, maybe you have painted something like, like you're saying a hand or a gesture. And then you go and you see a Manet you've never seen before. And you're like, Oh wow, that hand like that, you know, you relate to that in a way that it's represented, you know, that, that you feel a comfort. And I think it, it probably dips his toes back into that pool of survival where, you know, your familiarity is less dangerous or there's something, um, you know, like if, if you have a, a choking feeling or like you have, you've eaten something that makes you feel like your throat's closing and someone tells you like, oh, I've had that allergic reaction. You'll be okay. It'll pass in like five minutes or whatever. And then you calm down and it goes away because it's mental, you know, you're, you're thinking like, oh, I, I, this is new to me. I'm, I'm freaked out. And like, am I, am I going to die? Basically. That's like, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it interrupts, uh, well, I mean, it, one, it interrupts the cascade of anxiety and fear and the unknown, but it also, it's, it's a, it's a moment of shared empathy, you know, and it's a, it's a realization that, um, it's the, the, the proximity of again you know that feeling that like i uh, nobody really has direct access to me i'm always cut off from like a real connection and it's those moments of trauma where i'm you know i'm truly alone right yeah the hand goes on your shoulder and someone through words recreates your experience with you know, sounds coming out of their mouth. It's like, there's a loop that's magically closed, you know, and like there's an alone, an alone state, alone traumatic state that is, feels forever um, disconnected from the other or from, from the group, from the community, from the, from a shared experience, you know, from the disso- the dissolution of personal trauma that comes with shared experience, and right. through some through somebody else just taking a chance, communicative sharing sounds through space that create little bounces on your eardrum that turn little neurons on and off. It's a magic loop, you know, and the yeah. fact that a painting can do that. I was just going to say you can you, know. you can embed you can embed that same information. Uh, into uh, into stone and into into crushed up rocks that you've coated in oil and pushed around with a fuzzy stick. Yeah. Uh, and for anyone to say that it's useless or it has no need or, or no, you know, uh, there you go. It's a it's a it's an empathy generator that doesn't ever need to be, you know, turned on. It can't ever be turned off. Well, I guess you know, in the dark, you know, you got to put a <laughs> put a light switch into the room or open a window, but. Uh, that that to me is that's the only real uh, you know that's that's the that's the deep mystery is that uh, the universe kind of evolved to allow for that kind of connection through deep time is astonishing and and profoundly beautiful and uh, and if there's any any doubt as to whether or not you know we should people artists humans fathers brothers sisters and lovers if we should you know not keep trying to make this a better place that that's a great reminder you know that it's not just about you and me on zoom uh you know meaning like it's 
we don't just have our small community, you know, yeah. you and I connecting, my wife and I, your kids, you know, it's not just that small group. It's people from 50,000 years ago who put marks on a wall are, are part of our shared attempt to make things better. Right. Uh, let all that stuff in, you know. That's a wide stroke we just brushed there. <laughs> <laughs> Although I feel like we haven't talked too specifically about your work, but I feel like I have a real, a much broader understanding. Like now if I look at your work after talking to you for the last hour and a half, as opposed to before, I feel like there's more there, you know. Well, you know. Not that you need it, but no, it's, but, but it's nice. I, but, that, but that's the, you know. It's like having, um, I don't know, you know, I just thought it because I love to cook too, you know, yeah. and it's one thing to like eat a, to eat a meal that, you know, had to be made by somebody, you know, and the meal is delicious and it delivers its own joy uh, and reward. But, but when you really get to know the person who made the meal and you actually get to see that they love cooking and the joy that they have in making food and sharing food. And then it overlaps, like we just talked about with your own love of cooking yeah. of, and sharing food. How can you, how can that not change the way you interpret the flavors? You know, how can that not change the way that you, uh, the, the, the way that the space, you know, is activated when you're, when you're sharing a meal. Uh, so I, 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 I'm glad that it, it opened it up a little bit because I know that my work is, um, it's, it comes from an un, it comes, I have a, I have a weird, uh, it's not weird. It's just, we're all, we all have weird backgrounds. We all have our own weird path we took to get here. Um, but mine, um, uh, the, you know, the work that I make is not, there's not a lot of I don't I don't find a lot of other work that looks like mine. Yeah. Uh, so it's easy for me to be like, well, I guess, I guess, uh, I guess, I, there, there's no, um, there's no like, there's not a lot of shorthand around for the kind of work that I make in a contemporary sense. You know, it it can it's easy for it to get interpreted through a technical sense or through a kind of. Uh, a more removed art historical position or a pop position through, you know, contemporary narrative genres, you know, the, the filmic cinematic connection or the genre connections. But at the end of the day, like it, it's really less about, um, you know, I, I can't make my pictures. Like we, I said earlier, like I, I'm, I am, I had to make peace with the fact that I'm a, I'm a closed form narrative representational painter, but I keep trying to find ways to paint about stuff that you don't find in closed form narrative paintings. Right. And, and it's a lot of the things that I want to paint about, like we've talked a lot about neurology and we've talked a lot about kind of like percept, like perceptual um, uh, predictive models of reality. And, you know, a lot of that stuff is stuff that doesn't have a visual vocabulary. You know, if I was to make a literal picture about this, the conversation around the nature of consciousness and technology, it'd be like people taking surveys, you know, uh, in a psychology department or like a guy coding 
something. Right. Right. And that kind of literalism I'm not really interested in. So I have to find like these weird backdoor narrative propositions that might elicit a kind of emotional response to the viewer that is somewhere in the realm of uh, my area of interest, you know. Um, I can't get you to think directly about, you know, uh, the uh, the kind of cognitive uh, blind spots that technology has uh, revealed about the way we share narratives. But I can try to make a picture that makes you feel uh, that kind of strange disassociated sense of discovery that happens uh, in sublime landscape painting. You know, right. I have to backdoor people into this place and then hopefully at some point I get to sit down on a podcast and, and get a little deeper <laughs> into the, my own obsessions. Right, but I think that's what I, I do think that's what film does really well too. Is that yeah they bring you in through the story and narrative of the the empathy of the figure of the of the cast or whoever to sort of talk about those bigger issues. Because if you just like laid out the ideas of the Matrix to people, it's one thing. But then when you have Keanu Reeves and you know like in in there in there and you're seeing this sort of imagined landscape of those ideas playing themselves out, it becomes something that. You know, I think it's a, a testament to the visual and how it can stimulate a deeper understanding of, you know, of um, ideas and how they can play out and your your emotional and empathetic connection to it, which yeah. can be it could be really dry without it, you know. And, and you know, and the, and cinema has done such a good job at. Um, reminding you know in a way the cinema was the figure to not just narrative uh it's not just like the the place where narrative it ex was explored it's the place where the human it's the place where portraiture and and figure painting was or the the the, the language of the body and the language of the face was explored beyond uh, the painterly or into another realm, you know, the yeah. sequential, the, the ability to kind of like see the moment before the moment after to have the stakes of the human condition carried through multiple states with one recognizable visage, you know, to, to, to go on this real journey uh, with a recognizable empathetic, empathetic uh, character. And also to know that that person on some level exists out there in the world as an actor right kind of blurs that uh those boundaries a little bit more both kind of blurring the boundary between actor and character but blurring the character the, the boundary between character and viewer right. you know allowing you to enter that space where you know uh some i'm thinking about my own childhood like the way that somebody like indiana jones as an icon was as much every eight-year-old boy at that point as it was Harrison Ford. You know, it, yeah, it, totally. it was this like shared dialogue about the possibilities of discovery. And, and uh, you know, painting is uh, like, I think you, you, I found that I'm surrounded by a generation of painters like yourself uh, who grew up preloaded with a cinematic visual memory and are 
have all these two-dimensional kind of you know ancient 2d handmade picture making urges and they're having a, a grand time uh exploring that fused landscape between the possibilities that the two present alongside each other you know definitely uh, and and i mean man there's there's a generation of painters i'm already seeing in schools you know i teach at the new york academy of art in the graduate program and there's a generation of painters who have grown up in a in a purely virtual interactive space you know right? sure movies and televisions are the periphery but for them it's been about gaming and about were the world building of uh, virtual interactive stuff that has defined their visual memory and they're having a hell of a time exploring painting through that set of uh, uh visual memory and um like you said anybody who thinks that it it's worthless or dead or doesn't have any there's no juice left it's like ooh, i know a couple of 25 year olds that are uh yeah they got the are juice. Doing, they're doing some <laughs> wild stuff right now so yeah it's cool yeah yeah i mean it's it's a building block you know i think of all that yeah it, the, the diving board just keeps getting higher yeah you know i mean not not in a scary way but like you can you can do more flips <laughs> Yeah, there's more possibility. I mean, I'm yeah. sure you remember when Pong came out on Atari. Oh my God, yeah. And like, when I watch people playing Minecraft, I'm like, yeah, I see where it started. <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's yeah. not. It's it's very different and it's very similar, all the same, you know. Yeah. All right, I'm going to ask you a really annoying question. Okay. Um, favorite movie and maybe favorite band. Oh boy. I mean, that's impossible, right? Your favorite movie? Oh, God. Yeah, there's so many, you know. There's favorite movie of the last year. There's favorite... I I keep coming back to... And I know it's going to sound possibly pretentious. There's a... There's a... um, uh, There's an Akira Kurosawa movie that's called Dersu Uzala that not a lot of people... You know, he gets... He's known for... Uh, you know he's 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 been arguably like the 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 only filmmaker who never made a really bad movie. You know, there's so many these guys carry so many titles. Uh, but for me, my one of my favorite films is Dersu Uzala, which is a movie was one of the only movies he made that wasn't in Japanese. Mm-hmm. Um, it was actually in in Russian, and he shot it in Russia. And you know, it's just about a relationship of two men who become best friends under different circumstances and you know it's just a beautiful movie about the empathy that um strangers becoming friends and 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 then ultimately the loss of that relationship and it's a very human film um i love movies the older i get you know there's the there's movies that are the the, kind of have the thrill of of a a young man's thrill you know the action films and then right adventure films but the older i get i really really respond now much more to films that that weaponize empathy and the i'm going to cheat here a little bit and say one of my one of my recent favorite films similar to dare suzalo because of the same thing dare suzalo is all about empathy was nicholas cage's pig i don't know if you saw that it's it's great it's just again it's it's all about weaponizing empathy uh, so yeah, but my favorite band, man, 
when I was like a, when I was an 18 year old kid working in the film industry and, and then on weekends working for my dad's uh, heating and cooling company, you know, like it was just constant early ACDC being I was gonna, played. I, I've had a feeling it was going to go there. <laughs> well, that, that was then, but now it's good stuff. Hey, I mean, you know, talk about, uh, where you, you say muddy waters, you know, I mean, yeah. it's, it's just, it's all, it's all that just brought up to another generation. Right. You know? Uh, it's at the core of, um, a certain kind of music. Uh, but really the music that I've probably listened to the band that I probably listened to the most God, that's such a hard question. Because you said this earlier, you know, you said some people really respond to the instruments and they make beautiful, grand, sublime statements without the spoken word. Right. And and some people need the pop of a vocabulary. And weirdly, I've always been like I've always been a landscape guy and I've always been an instrumental guy. Yeah. Uh me too. I've been and, more of an instrumental guy. It's my wife who in high school, uh, she's going to kill me for saying this, but would like listen to Dylan and write, you know, notebooks of lyrics. Yeah. And, you know, everybody, everybody that she loved, she would transcribe the lyrics. And to this day, we can listen to anything written before like 1992 and she knows the lyrics to it. There that's are impressive. lyrics... I never knew exist like I, I she confirmed like I didn't I had no idea that that's what this song was about because I'm listening to the landscape behind it all you know yeah. so there's a lot of a uh, lot of ambient and a lot of landscape I mean landscape a lot of uh, instrumentally driven music that I listen to and I I gotta say like the most formative for me this is probably going to sound both timely and a little cheesy uh, was probably the the Greek. Uh, uh, composer and uh, and also keyboardist and musician uh, Vangelis, you know who did or Vangelis who did the 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 first Blade Runner soundtrack and oh, Chariots yeah. of Fire and you know he he had such a huge musical library that extended back to like European early European prog rock in the late sixties and seventies before any of his cinematic stuff just these crazy musical landscapes and this pre-cinematic stuff heaven and hell is an incredible album and he's influenced the entire generation of uh you know like he influenced uh like all the the carpenter soundtracks and john carpenter's synthwave stuff and then all the people who grew up on john carpenter and now are doing all their own synthwave music and you know like bands like survive did all the stranger things stuff like yeah. it's become such a part of the kind of like retro kind of contemporary cinematic landscape that that synthetic that synthesizer sound and he was really one of the early pioneers in it and so i i, I say not just in terms of the music that i listen to but how i end up hearing him in everything around me right, right. now yeah, you no, know, it, it's cotton that that kind of like vaporwave synthy. Yeah, 80s yeah, that vaporwave stuff. Yeah, it 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 connects. I I wonder, it must sound so different to young people who didn't live through that. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> right. when I hear vaporwave stuff, I'm like, yep, I know. You know, I start thinking of like you know, um, 
like all I, all those old shows, you know, there was such a an aesthetic like of the sound of it just brings me to all the that era, you know. And, and because that, I mean, because it was all because so much of it was synthetic and so much of it, very little was actually symphonic or right. like driven by like actual physical instruments. There was such a kind of almost like imaginative remove to the sound like it sounds like it's coming at you through a kind of veil of dimensionality you know there's a it's like on the other side of some kind of liminal barrier so the second you hear that it's like you know that anything any images associated with this music there's certain narrative structures that are going to be suspended and there's other ones that are going to be reinforced it's it's such it cues up like you said all this strange um like proprioceptive nostalgic stuff uh that is and sometimes i feel like uh that, that's just that's too much baggage to have like some of this music really needs to like kind of create its own it's like some of the some of the uh, some of it carries too much of that through time but there is something iconic uh about that music that i think is kind of like cemented into the firm some of it cemented in the the firmament as no this is now part of the canon and this is like a new this was a new vocabulary but it's now become an irreplaceable part of not just the the human sonic landscape but the human emotional landscape right you know like the, the the key thing of that music for me was how it elicits feeling um and I think some stuff relies on it a little too much now mm-hmm. for shorthand. Like, I don't want to do, the, we're not going to do the work with the writing to make you feel, but the music is going to make you <laughs> right, feel, we'll you know. Yeah. Right, but, but, when the, but when there's an equity between the different thing, you know, the writing, the directing, the cinematography, the sound, like it elevated, it elicited a kind of, to me, a new kind of emotional space to a lot of those other components. Um, so, it's a constant that sonic scape is a constant uh, presence in my studio up to like guys like um colin stetson who are doing really weird and interesting things with um a lot of wind instruments and brass instruments and stuff i don't know if you saw um or familiar with his music but he did the soundtrack to the um Nicola, another Nicolas Cage movie, The Color Out of Space, which was an H.P. Lovecraft adaptation from a couple years ago. And it's just got this really wild sonic landscape um, that I, I find. Heard it. I got to yeah, catch up on my Nick Cage stuff, I guess. <laughs> yeah, Pig and Color Out of Space. I still haven't seen the the uh, the, the, the new, new one, one that he did, the, the of immeasurable talent. I, my, but I, my father gave it a thumbs up, so... It sounds pretty meta. I mean, he's a pretty meta guy, I think. Yeah. You know, it's funny when we were talking about that 80s music, too. I thought of uh, of one was so huge for me was Close Encounters, you know? And it's funny oh how God, five yeah. notes. I feel like if you played those five notes for any human, their ears would perk up. You know, yep. it's just like that. There was something about it. Yeah. It, no matter what, I feel like people would be like, wait, what? You know, there's something about certain um, notes. And... Um, and Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and and what a bold move to hook your entire film's ending on a sound rather than a visual. I mean, I know that it's an incredibly visual film, but like 
there's no bad guy. There's no final fight. It's literally five notes being played, you know, on speakers. Yeah. And it has the, the kind of like tension and drama and uh, the kind of catharsis of that, that, you know, all movies are trying to get in their third act and they do it right. with five notes and a, and, a, and a synthetic keyboard. It's amazing. Yeah, it's really cool. One of my favorite movies is La Jate, the Chris Marker oh, silent God. movie. And, and the, uh, that talking about like bringing it full circle, you know, that one to me was, and I have such a specific love for that because uh, my friend that I was in a band with, uh, a few of my friends, they did a soundtrack and they played it live and they would project that movie. This was when I was Oh my grad God, school. that sounds amazing. And the music they made to it was so beautiful and perfect. And they, they played along to a screening of it and it just forever shifted my interpretation of the movie in a way, you know, which was like after the fact, but it was still really I'd nice. love to hear that. I'd love to hear that. I remember the first time I saw that in film school and, you know, there it's all still photographs yeah. except there's one shot of her sleeping where she bl- like, you know, she blinks her eye, like mm-hmm. her eyes blink while she's sleeping. And that was one of those films, like seeing that film and then going that already kind of subverted my entire yeah. expectation of what it was like to be a film student and to make movies and you know what I was getting into. So that back to back with Italy you yeah. know, going to do study abroad. It was like, okay. Uh, blew your mind? Yeah, La Jete blew my mind. You know, it really did. And and that led me down a rabbit hole of a bunch of other filmmakers who didn't think of themselves as filmmakers. They thought of themselves as artists working in film or video, like Chris right. Marker, you know. He's, yeah, yeah. Uh, it blurred the lines. Or like was like labelless. Like none of those things matter. I'm just working with images as I would with any other medium, you know. Right. And it was that both the, the the kind of dismantling of labels, and then the reassembling of them, not so much as labels, but as kind of um, signposts to take you off the the pre-established roots, you right. know. Yeah. Um, uh, that real. Oh, oh man, I'm glad you brought that up. Those are so uh, inspiring, aren't they? Those moments, like when you. I guess that's what we're talking about. Those yeah, moments when, where when you you see or hear the consciousness something. really comes alive. Like, yeah, oh, like, what, is, what is this? Yeah, exactly. Like Brackage did it for me. I was like, what? Or John Whitney, like like that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, just yeah, like, yeah. What? You know? Like, yeah, how? Yeah. And that, and and the the thing that really is terrible about people like that, who are so amazing, who would like open up those doors, even Picasso, someone like that, or the Beatles. Like yeah, to that point yeah, yeah. of like the stones letting in the door, the Beatles were just like, wait, how did you do go there next? You know, the thing that's so frustrating is like, it sets this bar that makes anyone who is creative, it makes you want to, you know, invent that or open that next door. And we know that most people can't do that. You know, it's, it's kind of this weird confluence of like right place, right time, right moment that you're doing a certain thing and it just links up and it's like, you know. Well, and the other thing, and this is, you know, this is maybe one of the, the, the bigger burdens or the things we haven't talked about. You, you might have talked about it with other people. We haven't really touched on it yet. And in, in that, the, you know, we keep bringing up film. We keep bringing up music. Those are both intensively collaborative environments, you know. And yeah. for most of the artists that I've known 
in Brooklyn in the last 20 years, it's the exact opposite. You know, it's incredibly monastic. It's non-collaborative. Like, you know, I have plenty of people, you know, you might do, uh, you might do a collaborative print release or something like that. But for the most part, as a practice, it's a singular endeavor. And yeah. you don't have, you know, you walk in from lunch, you know, and you hear Ringo grooving on something on the other side of the studio and like, oh, I'm going to join in on that. You know, right. you don't have those kind of like uh, collaborative momentum uh, gathering starts. It's a cold start on your own almost every time with, you know, of course, the, the quasi collaboration of being in a city filled with artists where you're always, you know, talking and looking. But at the end right. of the day, no, those people are really in the studio with me. It's you in a room. <laughs> it's me in a room. It's my own two hands, you know. Yeah. And and uh, it's that coming to terms with that day after day, making peace with that day after day, and working with that day after day, is I think that at the one of the big separators between those genres, you know. And and of course there are collectives, you know, within the art world that were designed partially around working around those limitations. But yeah. uh it's a it's it's a the the results um the the a the you know we know the process is going to be very different but but the results are different because the process is different. And that to me is the beauty of um of I mean, I, you know, I worked in that collaborative environment in the film industry for a long time before I moved to New York. And, and some of the best creative experiences I've ever had in my life were working together in a room with very, very talented people. Yeah. And some of the worst experiences I've ever had in my <laughs> life were being in a room surrounded with people who were absolutely certain that they had the best ideas in the room and had, you know, it, it can be a nightmare and it can also be, uh, you know, heaven on earth. And, I had enough nightmares where I said, okay, I'm going to go into a room by myself, set the rules and see solo. what I can come up with. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's liberating and it's also frightening because it's all on you too. So it's like, yeah. you know, if you write a, if you film a movie and it's a bomb, it's like, you know, well, there's a bunch of us on this one. We'll take the hit. We'll make another <laughs> one, you know? Yeah. And uh, when you're making work and putting it out there, it feels so, you know, you, but fortunately I, I feel like lately, you know, you hit a certain age where you're like, whatever, like, you don't like it. Fine. <laughs> you know, you yeah. can't please everyone all the time and, and you and just I get think, into what you're doing, you know? And I think, you, you know, you've been doing this long enough. You've gone through those cycles long enough where you know, uh, that you can trust the process, you know, and that it's not that, uh, it's not that you're going to, you're going to make a bunch of decisions and then pick the right one. Right. It's that you're operating at a place where the decisions that you make at this point are the right decisions, you know, because you have uh, a real understanding of what it is that you want to make and you trust the process. And even when you're working on new stuff, you know, you know that you're that it's that I mean, no one can see this, but it's that relationship between these guys and these guys. You right. know, like right. if these guys if these guys aren't working hands uh yeah if the hands aren't working it's i'm talking about hands right. and eyes or hands and brain uh if the hands aren't working uh the brain can go to dark places you yeah. know or it can go to unproductive places uh but the second that for me i've found that if i can get these guys the hands to start working the brain will eventually take notice and get up off the couch and be like all right well if you guys are in the pool i'm minus 
like let's work together on this because that looks a little too far to the left and right. that's maybe the wrong red <laughs> but without those hands making those decisions the brain doesn't have anything to respond to and it becomes it's so that's for me that's the collaboration you know between yeah. the immediacy of like the the kind of uh n unconscious uh intuitive decision making of the hands and the kind of slightly removed operative objective you know uh panopticon like decision making of the eyes and the brain and that's the collaboration it's a three-part it's a three-parter so yeah uh, well you just brought it back to with the panopticon reference <laughs> such a big thing in school I remember reading foucault and thinking about that stuff Whew, it was heavy yeah it still is yeah those are the days <laughs> now it's like you know ducking pandemics and stuff like that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we used to be in a room and thinking like, "Oh, is my is my work important enough?" And now it's like, you know, now it's like, uh, "Can I? How do I survive a hundred and four degree heat in a N ninety five? Why to go <laughs> to my how studio? Do I how do I survive heat stroke with a mask on? <laughs> right during a recession. Ugh. And the president got COVID. And the president's got COVID. <laughs> mild, mild symptoms. Right, right, mild symptoms. Yeah. Oh, boy. Well, boy, we covered a lot, didn't we? Yeah, we did. I feel like we could still talk for a couple more uh, hours. Uh, there, me too. Uh, you probably have to use the restroom like I do. I do have to use the restroom. <laughs> it's the, like the calling of every podcast. The ending of every podcast is like hit the, my age is like, all right, you got to run to the restroom. <laughs> that's going to be the, one of the sub-chapters in the book, right? The, the bladder go. knows when to call it. <laughs> right. right. That's yeah. when it's time. Um, so people can find you. Are, are you working on anything you got anything coming up at the moment? You know, I I was just supposed to have a show uh, last year. Um, I was supposed to have a show. Uh, two, I had two, one or two shows canceled during COVID uh, that I'm kind of like reorganizing things for. So I've got a whole bunch of new work that I'm working on. So nothing immediately coming up. Um, but, you know, people can keep up to date on uh, probably uh spring of 2023 will be my next thing people can keep up to date on my instagram that's just jean-pierre roy uh with no uh spaces or anything you can, there's only one of me there's uh, only one jpr i mean there, there are other ones but one of them died <laughs> in the 20s he was a baseball player oh i the saw other that one, you know whenever yeah, i was doing some research on you right there's a real estate guy in montreal who i keep getting emails from his bank uh, but if you go into Instagram and type in Jean-Pierre Roy, I'm the first guy that comes It's up, nice so. when you have that. Uh, you know, I, n there's no Brian Alfreds out there except for a tax firm in London. For some reason, oh. they're called Brian Alfred. I think Maybe it's you'll get a discount. A portmanteau of two tax dudes or something. But, <laughs> yeah, it's nice having a name that there's not a lot of, you know. It was hell on the, on the playground as a kid. Yeah. yeah I, I've aged into it, I think. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good name. Um, so, yeah, it was great talking to you. It was hey, great meeting you, and uh, we should do some studio visits. I was going to say, we're, we're, we're far t too close to, uh, to have not done studio visits. Exactly. So that'll be next. We'll set it up. Sounds good. All right, thanks a lot, man. I really enjoyed it. Have a great night. You too. Sound Vision is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find images by going on Instagram at Sound Vision Podcast. Find out more about my work at brianalfred.net or at Alfred Studio on Instagram. 
If you're going tonight to see the uh, group show that we curated, Why I Make Art, and going to the book signing, it'll be great to see you there. Otherwise, the show will be up for just about a month at Miles McHenry, 511 West 22nd Street. And many thanks to all those who have already gotten the book. It's number one on new releases and art essays on Amazon, which was pretty incredible. So I thank everyone for their support. Thanks to all the artists who were involved. Thanks to Jean-Pierre for taking the time out to talk. Check out his work. It's amazing. Many thanks to Golden Artist Colors, as usual, for their sponsorship. And to Fulcrum Coffee Roasters for the caffeination. The coffee is so good, you should really go online and order some. I'm just saying. It's good stuff. Many thanks to all you for listening. And if you can, leave a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really helps out. Thanks for your support.